Hi everyone, Josh and Ryan here, and welcome back to the 2% Podcast. Research shows if you put 100 random people in a room, somewhere amongst them, there'll be just two truly incredible, inspirational people who are living their lives to the fullest. In this podcast, we bring those exact people to you, week in, week out. 2% of a day is just half an hour, so thank you for taking 2% of your day to be educated and inspired by joining us on our journey as we learn the secrets, routines and dreams of the two percenters. All right, welcome back everyone to the 2% podcast. Today we are excited to be joined by Mark Ryan. Mark, welcome. Thank you so much for for joining us. It's been uh, months in the making this episode with our our scheduling. Um, So great to have you with us. If we could just jump straight in with the bio so we get all of our guests just to do a bit of an introduction to themselves. If you could give everyone listening just a a brief intro to yourself, that'd be fab. Get kicked off. Yeah, sure. No problem. So as Ryan already said, I'm Mark. I'm from the USA, but right now I'm currently in the UK because I... I'm studying, like, just finished studying for my MBA over here. My background in, as an undergrad, I studied psychology, and then I ended up getting into teaching. I ended up teaching for a few years in China and ultimately managing and leading teachers over there. And then I decided I I want something more. So I guess an MBA was a logical next step in my in my career. Now that I've finished that. I'm searching for jobs, I'm exploring PhD opportunities, I'm searching for ideas to develop myself. I want to make my own podcast very soon, so that's part of the reason I even connected with Ryan in the first place. And I'm I'm just trying to to better myself and make the most of of the situation that we're in right now. Yeah, amazing. No, I love to see that. And yeah, no, it's it's always funny to to connect with with people who are of a shared interest, kind of in the space, but kind of never come across each other before. Obviously, from from Lancaster to uni. Let's um <laughs> yeah. let's start off with uh, kind of your beginnings. Then let's kind of start in a bit of a chronological order. What was your initial interest in in psychology? And you know, you mentioned that that you did that undergrad back mm-hmm. in the states. Kind of how is the education system different as well? Kind of starting off with those two points. Yeah. So I actually I want to take it even before I decided on my yeah yeah let's go all the way major. back yeah yeah. So my initial when I applied for university, I I went to Bucknell University in the U.S. And one of the reasons I chose that university is because they had an animal behavior major which almost no other university has. Mm -hmm. On campus, they literally have a primate lab. And in this lab, they have all sorts of monkeys and and the researchers actually do experiments. Some are more psychological, more like, for example, testing memory or testing emotions in primates or gender differences or this sort of stuff. But I've always found animals fascinating. Then in my third year, I was given the option to study abroad. So I pretty much had two... I came in as a as an animal behavior major. And then in my third year, I was kind of faced with the choice, either stick with animal behavior and I, I would have to stay in Bucknell to do the lab or switch to psychology. And most of the courses in animal behavior also satisfied psychology classes. So if I switched, I would be able to study abroad. So I decided to, to make the change and to study abroad. So that was more uh, situational yeah. than than anything else. Yeah. And actually my where I studied was Lancaster University, which is how I even found out about this school. And that's why I decided I had a wonderful experience. And I said, hey guys, take me back. And they did. So that's that's how I got into psychology. Nice. 
Yeah, amazing. And so then what was the transition for you from psychology to business for your MBA? Yeah, so yeah, so I think I kind of take it in four steps. So first is kind of biology, then I shifted to psychology, and then I shifted the psychology that I studied again was connected more to animal behavior. So it was more like how does the brain function? It was less from like the social psych or you know like the therapist tell me about your problems that <laughs> yeah, that yeah. kind of thing. It was, it was much more biological in nature, but there was still enough of it that I was able to transition that into education. And that was really the third step. So I became mm -hmm. an educator. And then from there, I became a leader in education. And then ultimately that leadership role was what made me desire to do something that's in leadership, to really lead people, to have a high position in, in a company. And that's why I ultimately went for my MBA. So I guess it was all just sort of a steady progression. Nothing I could have predicted, but it was, if you really think about it, it wasn't like a drastic jump. It wasn't that I just totally switched. It was a slow transition from one, one idea to another and to another and so on. I hope that, mm. <laughs> that answers yeah, no, it for sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, for sure. So mm -hmm. I, I put to you then, what is education to you then? Is it something which is something that's always been there for you, I suppose, or is it something that you've really found in that you're really passionate about it? It's something mm. you want to, to do and give to, to sort of drive everything that you do. So I, I can tell you, my, my parents have always been telling me, you know, you'd be a great teacher. <laughs> yeah. And I used to enjoy like teaching my sister, for example, um, just helping in class, if they needed someone to come up to the front of the room and demonstrate something, I was always, mm. you know, teacher, yeah, yeah. that, kind of, that <laughs> kind of thing. So I've had a passion for wanting to teach. I never had an idea that I could teach in China or that I, the size of the ESL business in not, not just China, but pretty much all around the world, the importance of English, mm. just the, because it's the international medium of communication, everybody is, is trying to, to learn it. So that's a huge business in itself. I didn't have any specific draw to teaching English. It just sort of happened, but mm. teaching itself, I've, I've always been passionate about. As for your, your second question about what is education, a lot of people assume education equals school. And that's, that's very far from the truth. And personally, and I don't just speak for myself, but for a lot of other people, I think the best education is done by doing. It's not learned in a classroom. You can gain the foundations in a classroom, but you really... The most important things, I think this was going back to John Dewey, I, I hope I don't misquote him, but the most important things that you need to learn, you can only learn by doing. And in, in that sense, in, in schools, they just kind of stuff you full of facts and numbers and all this stuff. And oh, this guy discovered this place in whatever year. And that's useless. And even more so now that we all have a supercomputer in our pockets that can just instantly give us all those numbers. But what we really need to do is apply things. How did I learn to be a teacher? I didn't sit in front of some textbook and just read about how to teach. No, I, I got in front of a classroom. I tried, I failed many, many times. And I learned stop doing the things that fail and keep doing the things that are succeeding. And just slowly over time, I've molded myself into a professional teacher. And then the same with management. I failed and failed again and failed again. And that's necessary. And that's not, you can get the base foundation from reading a textbook or from talking to other people. 
but you really have to go out there and just try it. And that's sort of what education is to me. And I apply that in my classroom. Teaching English, for example, I don't just stand there and talk for 40 minutes and say, guys, okay, this is, this is what English is. I give a very brief prompt and then you guys take over the class, have the students speak, have them use it, have them live it. And that's what education is to me doing. Yeah, I love that. I love your, your perspective around the practicalities of, of education. I think there's probably not enough focus on that. What I'd come back to, though, is maybe how you differentiate between education and learning. So mm. for Josh and myself, just coming out of university ourselves at, at undergraduate level, class of 2020, all of that kind of we finished our education now, but now we have to go on to kind of lifelong learning and that kind of perspective. Yeah. How would you how would you differentiate between kind of education and, and learning and how can we encourage people to enjoy learning enough so that when you do finish it, whether it is undergraduate, whether it is just straight out of sixth form or college, that you are a, a lifelong learner? That's that's actually quite tough because in a sense, I mean, your, your sort of definition of education is almost constricted to, restricted to schooling, to mm -hmm. education is something you do when you're in school. And lifelong learning is essentially the same as education, but outside of the school setting. Mm -hmm. And sort of in my mind, I almost equate learning and education. I, I guess education is is more like preparing for something. But th then again, you could sort of see learning and in that sort of way as well. It's, I, yeah, I guess, it's in, yeah. So I, I'm sort of thinking, you know, when people say like, what education, what level of education have you received or what I'm educated, if you say something like that, they're mm -hmm. implying that they have, you know, some high master's degree or some really high qualification or something mm -hmm. like that. But I also would add in like intelligent and wise and these other words as well. And they're all, they're all quite similar. And I, I can't really mm. answer your question because I was sort of approaching my original definition as education essentially being learning. But I really just want to draw a difference between educated and I guess learned because you, mm. you clearly can go through years of, I mean, there, there's some people with PhDs and all these really high credentials who are educated, but I wouldn't really say they're learned. Learning is sort of the ability to how fast you can take in new information and apply it to a novel scenario. Whereas education is sort of like, have you seen this before? Are you able to repeat, maybe repeat what you've you've done? So mm. like I'm I'm thinking like in um an MBA, they'll they'll tell us, okay, in this situation, the right thing to do would generally be this. And I wouldn't know it if I hadn't taken the class. But I think a person who's wise or learned or really what I would define as intelligent would be able to sort of deduce based on the surroundings what the proper action is without needing to be told what it is. Mm -hmm. No, I see that definitely. But it's, 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 a, it's a really tough distinction. Yeah. And it's almost, I'm, I'm kind of contradicting myself because I was almost talking about education <laughs> before no, yeah. as what now you're sort of saying is learning. And it, it's, mm. I, I almost want to like erase that definition, replace <laughs> yeah. that with learn to make it a little more salient but yeah yeah no i definitely get get what you're saying and i don't think we want to stick too much on the kind of philosophical 
mm-hmm. parts of the kind of definitions of education and learning and whether you're educated or learned or anything else. But mm-hmm. I think the reason I, I drew to that point was I think there's a lot of trends now or, or commentating around the value of a university degree and the value of a master's degree and how you can basically learn everything in the real world and everything's on the internet and, and all of these yeah. things. And um, so where I was going with that line of inquiry was really around the value of being educated by an institution and mm-hmm. then taking that forward into different fields, you know, as you have done. And so what would your perspective be around the inherent value, I suppose, of undergraduate and, and then master's education in that respect. Yeah. So I, I think a lot of it comes, and I, I sort of, I think a lot of it comes down to motivation. And I can, I can say this as a highly motive, generally highly motivated person. If someone gives me an assignment, like my dissertation, and just says, okay, in two months, complete a, a piece of work that has this many words and is, is a full study of whatever you want it to be. I can do that without too much pushing or too much like a supervisor checking in on me every other day to make sure I've hit this, this sort of requirement and so on. But for a lot of people, I think the value of a structured education system, whether it's traditional uni or whether it's something like a Coursera, like an online, every day you have to complete X amount of tasks and follow at a certain pace. I think the value of that structured approach is that a lot of people are not intrinsically motivated, but instead they're only motivated by the reward. They're not in it for learning itself, but they're rather in it for what the outcome is. And I think if you, for example, if you got rid of the the structured education system, a lot of people would just say, screw it, you know, I'm not even, I'm not going to even bother. Almost having that reward and punishment system in place is what drives a lot of people to become educated because they don't have that internal desire to to become in what we would consider traditionally educated. Mm. And again, I don't, it's tough because a lot of people who you would not consider educated, someone who went to a trade school or something like that, for example, they're very intelligent in a specific area. Like I, and even, even when I make this comparison, people will say, oh, like you're so smart, you're so intelligent. I couldn't fix a car. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't repair a computer like deep down inside like chips and things like that. The people who do that are impressive. We're able to take machines and build them to that that sort of level or diagnose problems. It's just a different it's a different passion and a different uh way of of living life, but it's it's just not really compatible with, you know, math, science, whatever we're teaching in the the traditional K to 12 educational environment. So I think motivation is a big part of it. And I also, I also just think, think in general that education, if you didn't have a very formal, rigid education system in place, I think a lot of, I think a lot of people would just be lost. Sort of like, okay, in, in university, you have to select a certain track, a, a major. If you didn't have that, I think a lot of people would just be wandering around with a little of everything, but no real, no real direction in how to proceed in, in life. Mm, yeah, I see that. I think a lot of people get, like say, that, that drive and that pur- purpose almost from education. I'm yeah. going to bring bring you back now to the failure element that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. So you said, you know, you've you found education, 
you then wanted to become a leader within education and then that was the bridge almost between education and, and business mm. um, and and in that teaching you said oh I failed to teach a lot I failed to lead a lot kind of what is that what did that look like for for you and I sense failure has been very important for you as well yeah I before I even get into that I just want to to emphasize that I guess from my MBA one of the most valuable things I've learned is humility and it almost runs counter to a lot of the, the so-called quote-unquote leaders who we see around the world who are just so arrogant and never admit they're wrong and that sort of stereotype. But I, I think what they've really emphasized is that a real leader should be not afraid to admit shortcomings or mistakes. And I think if I had done this podcast a year ago, I probably would not have been this humble in terms of admitting that all these failures, I might have been a little more arrogant, a little more just like showing off myself and that and just trying to throw away the the failing side. In terms of what does failure look like in in a classroom environment, that's me getting up there and saying saying something and who knows the answer to this question and then there's just dead silence and no no one I'm like, "Oh, uh-oh, that's 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 a problem." It, it could be that it could be trying to explain an activity and just the kids have no idea what I'm talking about. It could be the class is wild and I just have no way of controlling them. As a leader, it could be I announce a policy and then all the teachers in my group are just pissed off and just angry and just like, no, we're not following this. And as a person, I'm I definitely feel I, I feel a little disappointed with myself, nervous at the moment. Like, how am I going to recover from this? What am I going to say next? So I guess that's what it, it sort of looks and feels like. But if you take it like two or three days later when the emotion has kind of left the situation and I've gotten into a more reflective state, again, something the MBA has really pushed on me, the ability to reflect on things, then I realize, okay, I failed. How am I going to look at this not as a I mean, it's a failure in terms of me being in the classroom and not getting the knowledge to children, but it's also a positive in that I know what not to do next time, or I know where I went wrong and how I can avoid this the next time I'm in this, a similar situation in the classroom. So I, I just try to, although the failure really hurts at the moment, it's better to have those, those failures because that makes me a better person in the long run. And nobody, nobody at all goes through life without failing, no matter what they tell you. Anybody who, and they always say this, if it seems too good to be true, it, it's not true. And that's the same for, you know, all these people posting on Facebook and Instagram, mm. all these wonderful stories and all this, they're failing. They're just hiding it and they're hiding it from you. And in some cases they're hiding it from themselves as well. And they're just not afraid. They're, they're just totally afraid to admit any sort of inadequacies or any sort of flaws to their character. Yeah. I think that's a really important point about people hiding their failures from not just other people online, but also from them, from themselves. And I think, it's interesting what you said about one of the things you've learned is to sort of get better at reflecting upon yourself. So have you sort of had a bit of a, a breakthrough moment of where you've tried to be more transparent with yourself around the failures that you're having? I can't, I can't think of one breakthrough moment. I've always been quite introspective. I've always been quite reflective. But this year on the MBA, they forced us to keep a, a diary, basically. And we had to write in um, for example, any situations that that were challenges or failures or anything like that, and just reflect on them. And there was the cycle of reflection, but it sort of 
was narrowed down to what happened, so what, like what was the cause of it, and now what, what will you do in in the future because of this. And I don't know if that's something specific to Lancaster or if that's a, a, just a, a general model, but they use that that sort of model to to have us write these, these diaries. And I tried, I tried it on quite a few things. I tried it on like academic things. I tried it on personal things. I had um, on the COVID-19 situation, trying to, to work myself through it. And I just think, I think now I'm even more reflective than I used to be. and. I think it's, I think it's a really helpful tool to, I, yeah, I think it's just about being honest with myself. When I write things down in this diary, I really try to be as honest as I can. And because I know nobody's going to read it except me. And for that reason, I don't have to pretend to be, you know, this powerful leader or this, you know, always confident, always energetic, always intelligent, always has the answers. I don't have to pretend to be that that sort of persona. Instead, I can be honest and say, oh, I'm, I'm terrible in this. And just the mere fact of writing it down sort of implants it in my brain. Then where I go from there is I don't turn around and say, oh, woe is me, you know, my life sucks. Instead, I say, I know I'm bad at this. How can I improve in this? And then take that and just be more self-aware of, of the fact that this is a weakness of mine. This is something I want to improve. How can I do it? And where do I, I go from here to improve it? So I think that's really the value of reflection, for, yeah. at least for me personally, yeah. No, definitely. Myself and Ryan, actually, we had a, a module called Advanced Interpersonal Skills in final year mm. that we had to write reflective uh, diaries on. And they were definitely very helpful in terms of mental health and just getting everything off your chest. And like you say, no one's mm. going to read it. It's just being vulnerable with yourself and the paper. So I definitely echo that. And something I want to ask you about as well is, I guess, some a lot of people stick with the same sort of career paths or discipline because they get better at them and therefore mm -hmm. almost failures kind of reduce over time because they understand what they're doing. So when you were going through these transition periods and changing from one discipline to another, was that something that you were kind of scared about at any point or conscious that you would kind of keep throwing yourselves into, into new environments where failure was more likely to happen? I think it was maybe the opposite. I, I just got bored of what I was doing. <laughs> that sounds terrible. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I just, I like change. I like to be in those new environments, partially because I am vulnerable, but partially just because I like learning new things. I don't, and one of my worries is that I would get caught up in a, a very narrow field where I just became an absolute expert on some tiny little molecule of DNA or something ridiculously small where I knew every possible thing about this. And I spent my whole life, you know, just researching this one tiny little speck of, of what makes us human or what, what is in the world that I become completely oblivious to, to everything else that's around me. So part of like the, the career transitions and the, the constant changes in my life are that I just simply get bored. I have a passion or a desire to just keep learning, to, to learn as much as I can, to always ask questions, to always experience and try new things. And if I stick to one thing, then I'm, I'm never, I'm never going to get that well-rounded ability to, I guess, ability to converse in almost every field. And I, I hold that as one of my really high um, personal values, I suppose, in that almost anything that someone talks about, I'm at least able to, to speak the basic 
uh, to at least know the, the basics of that field. And it's, it's kind of surprising to, to a lot of people that they assume I know nothing about like quantum physics or something, but I at least can sort of hold my own in almost any conversation because I at least know the basics. And I, I just value that. So I, I guess I just don't want to get too stagnant in yeah. one area and become bored <laughs> if you really no, want I to. Think, I think that's a really nice philosophy, actually, or value. I really like that. They sort of keep learning new things all the time. Just quickly before this, this call ends, um, what would your mm. advice be for someone that's kind of, you know, they've got that inkling that they might want to try new things and they, they would like to learn something new, but they're a bit scared and it's a lot easier to stay in what they know and their comfort zone, et cetera. What would you say to someone like that? I, I would probably, I mean, other than just go for it. Um, in, in, terms of, in terms of advice, to be honest, I don't know if it's for everybody. Mm. And there, it, it's sort of, again, it, it's coming back to the, the fact that a lot of people, for almost like ignorance is bliss, for a lot of people, not knowing too much is almost a, ha is a happier life. And who am I to necessarily judge that that's the wrong way to live? Personally, I think that's a terrible way to live. But I know some people who have followed that traditional, you know, okay, you just graduate, you stick to one job, you have that family, you have all like the, the traditional way of living. And they're happy. They're very happy in, in that way. So I think I would, I would want to know the, the person's character before I, I did that because it is a challenge. However, if it was somebody who I felt was able to, to handle that and benefit from it, I don't want to say handle that. I think anyone can handle it, but someone who would personally benefit from it, I would just say, I, I would probably just ask the person, you know, what do you really, what do you really value in life? And most likely something about learning or something about personal growth, self-development would be in there. And then I would jump on that and I would say, are you honestly developing yourself by remaining in this one position? Are you honestly learning an overall picture of the world by just sticking to the same thing? And I think that would kind of prompt the person to say, ah, uh, probably not. And then sort of give a little bit of a push, a nudge in the direction of changing or trying something new. And then again, I think the last thing to emphasize would be the failure part, that what's the worst thing that would happen if you failed? Sure, it's uncomfortable standing in front of kids, a whole group of 30 kids, and none of them are, they're all out of control, and everything just seems like an absolute disaster. But then a few minutes later, you just walk out of the class and it's all done. And it's, it's over. What's the worst that happened? I learned something. I, I failed. It was uncomfortable, but I learned something. And I, on, on that, that note, again, I, I would not advise, you know, throwing away everything to try something new. So I'm, I'm going to try a podcast, for example, as I've said. I'm not just going to give up all my other, my, my source of income or throw everything away to try something. I'm just going to try it as part of the many things that I'm doing at the moment. If it works, I slowly grow it. If it doesn't work, hey, I tried it, I failed, whatever, we move on to the next thing. And then I probably will replace that with something else. So again, start slow. But I, in general, I, I recommend, I think trying, trying new things is great. I really do. Oh, fantastic. Some great closing comments there. And, yeah. I, and I definitely agree to start slow. And also the fact, like you said, that it's not for everybody, like just because you admire how someone else lives their life, it doesn't necessarily mean that 
that is the right route yeah. for you so take a bit of um introspection and, and see if that's what you actually that's it for another episode of the two percent podcast thanks so much for tuning in we hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed recording if you or someone you know has a story to tell we'd love to hear from you so please get in touch and if you have a question you want answering send it in to us using anchor voice messages and you can feature in a future episode all the links are in the description stay motivated follow your dreams and as always do it with a smile